Welcome to the One God Report podcast. I'm really excited to have with us Keegan Chandler, author and friend of mine. Keegan specializes in the areas of Christian history, theology, paganism, and Japanese religion. He holds a Master of Theology from Campbellsville University. Keegan's the author of Constantine and the Divine Mind, The Imperial Quest for Primitive Monotheism, published just this last year by Wiffenstock, and we'll make sure we link to that, because that's really what we want to discuss here in this episode. A lot of people will know Keegan from his book called The God of Jesus in Light of Christian Dogma. He's worked a lot in other areas of historical Christology. He serves as an adjunct professor at Atlanta Bible College, and now he's also one of the board members of the Unitarian Christian Alliance. Keegan, before we talk about this new book of yours, Constantine and the Divine Mind, any other biographical comments you'd like to make? No, I think you've uh, summed it up pretty well. I'm really excited to be here and to have the opportunity to talk about Constantine. All right, then for those of us who know little to nothing about church history, can you tell us who Constantine was? Sure. Constantine is a very important Roman emperor who ruled from 306 to 337. He's important for many reasons, but it's kind of hard to grasp his significance in the history of the Christian religion without uh, something of a view of the Roman world that he emerged in and the world that he ultimately shaped like few other emperors ever did. So I'd like to lay that out for us if I can. His predecessor, Diocletian, He'd done something during his rule that was quite shocking. He had initiated an organizational and social reorganization of the Roman Empire. And he'd done that because the third century was a disaster for Rome, economically, militarily. And the empire was very big. It was very hard to manage. So he actually divided the Roman Empire into a group called the Tetrarchy, the Rule of Four. There were two primary emperors, two Augusti, and then there were two lesser emperors called Caesars beneath them. And not only was Diocletian in the business of reforming the government, but also the religion of Rome too, which was very much intertwined with that government and justified it. There was a renewed emphasis on the worship of many, many gods and of the traditional Roman gods. Diocletian wanted to hearken back to the golden age of Rome to win the gods' favor, but also to cohere Roman society around Roman ways of life. Now, this was a, I think, in some ways, a sincere interest, uh, religious interest on behalf of the Tetrarchy, uh, but it was also political. Again, you can't really disentangle those things in this period, but the Tetrarchy was interested in justifying a plurality of rulership uh, in which their plural rule of, of Rome was reflective of a plural rule of many gods in the heavens. So this created a clash, and many people have heard of the great persecutions in this period uh, in which uh, Christians were forced to worship the traditional gods of Rome but there was a very tumultuous religious scene onto which Constantine strolled. Constantine was born probably around the year 272. We aren't sure exactly. He was born in modern Serbia, and his father was a very important man. His father was named Constantius Chlorus, and he occupied the role 
of Caesar, one of these two lesser emperors of the Tetrarchy. His father was a solar monotheist. He was a worshiper of the Roman sun god Sol Invictus. I argue that Constantine, as a younger person, was probably interested in this sort of solar monotheism before he became entangled with the Christians. But he essentially seems to have lied low in Diocletian's court before suddenly springing onto the scene and claiming one of the seats of the lesser emperors and making some very surprising moves to protect the religious liberty of Roman subjects, including pagans and Christians, and famously trying to put a stop to uh, Christian persecutions. And to make a long story short, Constantine eventually went to war with several of his family members, including the emperor Maxentius and the emperor Licinius, to ultimately become the sole and supreme ruler of both the eastern and western halves of the empire. And he started those wars around 312 and then finally came to win his sole rulership of the empire in the year 324. And after that, Constantine did a lot to shape the Roman Empire. He restructured the government, the military, there were a host of religious reforms, the scope and nature of which are still debatable. He's famous for moving the, the capital of the Roman Empire to Constantinople, which was a very big deal. It changed history forever. He was a really brilliant and imposing man, an incredible general. The question that we might be discussing today is whether or not he was a good religionist. Was he a good theologian or even a Christian? Those are not entirely questions of history, but very important questions, I think, for Protestants and for anybody who's interested in the history of Christianity and the history of the West. But he is very famous for his deep interest and an entanglement, if you will, with the Christian religion and for even making movements to resolve certain religious disputes as well. So his serious interest in Christianity is the primary focus in my book. The question that many people have been interested in, many Christians have been interested in, is uh, as to whether or not he ever at any point truly converted to Christianity and what his reasons were for doing so. And so those are the twofold aims of uh, my inquiry. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the reason that you decided to write this book, to continue the study of the genuineness of Constantine's Christian faith? Yeah, well, the reason I wrote this book is multifaceted. As a historian, I've long been interested in questions about Christian doctrine and how those ideas have developed over time and how they've been received or, or changed in different global contexts under different cultural pressures. Uh, these topics have always been deeply fascinating to me, being a Christian myself who's had to navigate through some similar questions during my own theological journey. Even more specifically, I'm also a Unitarian Christian, and I'm interested in the development historically of the doctrine of the Trinity and in the progress of Christology and the history of the church in general. And Constantine is so very pivotal in the history of Christian doctrine. You, you can't really begin to approach this development of the Christian doctrine of God without looking into him, not only because of the efforts that he made at the Council of Nicaea, which are very famous, but also his efforts to transform the Roman Empire into this Christian setting, uh, which became the backdrop for the ecclesiastical and theological development of Christian religion in the following centuries. Uh, in Constantine, 
surprisingly, while he's certainly one of the most popular emperors, he is also one of the most mysterious emperors. We know so many things about him, and yet we still seem to understand so little. Generally speaking, about his religion, what he was up to with religion, and his conversion to Christianity, it seems to pose one of the greatest historical challenges and perhaps one of the most important for Christian debates over the the route that the church ultimately took uh, after his reign. I mean, if I were to ask you, Bill, who are some of the most famous converts to Christianity, you would probably say Paul, maybe uh, Augustine, and you would probably say Constantine. Mm -hmm. Very, very famous convert. But what most people don't know is that Constantine's conversion to Christianity when it took place and why it took place and whether it even ever took place at all, this has been a continually debated by historians since at least perhaps the middle of the 19th century. We've had such a diverse range of assessments on this question. Some scholars famously in the 19th century had Jacob Burthardt, who concluded that Constantine and his conversion, these were just purely political actions. He said Constantine never really became a Christian. He was actually irreligious. While other scholars on the other side of the spectrum have said, well, no, the man was nothing short of a saint. He was an apostle of the church. He was a true Christian who worked to banish paganism from his realm. In the Orthodox Church, they even have the Feast of St. Constantine. So they would say, no, everything he did, these were the efforts of a sincere Christian. Hmm. And then there are other historians who would say, well, Constantine is both a politician and a sincere religionist who is working to bridge the gap between pagans and Christians in his kingdom. So, you know, you you look at this range of interpretation, all of this scholarly back and forth, and it, it poses a great challenge. And it's amazing how people can come up with such different interpretations, even though we all seem to be reading the same data. So, In the book, I suggest a way to resolve all of this, first by thinking about what it meant to become a Christian in late antiquity. And this helps us to kind of understand the available options that the different trajectories that Constantine might have been on. And secondly, to revisit the pagan world from which Constantine approached Christianity. And this helps us to better understand how he fit into this world and how he saw himself. The solution that I, that I pose to this quandary is that I believe that Constantine sincerely believed in this, a supreme God, and he believed this was the God of the Christians, but it was also the God of the Romans, and that he was commissioned by this supreme God to restore a universal monotheism on the earth, that his job was to bring back an ancient religion, the most original religion, a pure monotheism with no idols. He believed that this was something that both pagans and Christians could get on board with. Hmm. Um, so that's ultimately the meta narrative, the, the framework through which I argue in the book we should read all the Constantinian evidence. And when we do that, it helps to resolve all of this scholarly back and forth. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll get into some of those things in a little bit more detail as we go along here. I'll just say, in your book, Constantine, the subtitle is Constantine and the Divine Mind, 
the imperial quest for primitive monotheism. Cregan's he's a scholar, right? So the, the book is well-researched, footnoted, et cetera. It's not a huge book. It's not daunting in that way. I think it's about 170 pages or so. So anybody that's interested in church history is going to naturally be interested in this, and we all should be, and especially Constantine, because he's going to wield that political power over the then known world. But let me ask you about your title. What do you mean when you say Constantine and the divine mind? What or who is the divine mind? Well, the full title is very important. Constantine and the divine mind, the imperial quest for primitive monotheism. As I mentioned uh, just a few moments ago, my argument in the book is that Constantine was on a quest and a very imperial one backed by the full power of the Roman state, as you Mm. mentioned. And he is on a quest for monotheism, for the most original, most primitive version of man's religion. He's on a quest for the original one true God. And I believe that he calls this God the divine mind. Mm. And as I lay out in the book, this was a title that was current in pagan, uh, in philosophical, and even in Christian circles. So this book is very much about Constantine's relationship with this one God, with this divine mind, but it's also about Constantine's own view and his own view of himself. There is a famous reference to the divine mind located on the Arch of Constantine, which was the construction was started in 312 to celebrate his uh, victory. And it's there in Colosseum Valley, right next to the Colosseum. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, on this massive arch, it's covered in solar symbols um, of Sol Invictus and other pagan deities. And there's a massive central inscription, and it says, uh, quote, instinctu divinitatis mentis magnitudine, uh, which people usually translate as uh, with the inspiration of the divine and the greatness of mind. Now, some people argue that this divine mind, this divinity, that this is actually supposed to be the mind of Constantine, you know, who was so wise and crafty as to outsmart his enemies and take power. But others have argued that this refers actually to a deity. I think that the flexibility actually may be deliberate here, given Constantine's penchant for Hermeticism, which is a philosophical Greco-Egyptian solar monotheism, in that religious view, mind is the vehicle for communion with the divine. And upon enlightenment, one's mind could become superhuman, if you will, once you realize the divinity in yourself. And it's well known that Constantine would dress himself in the raiment of the sun god in his official propaganda. So, so this quest for primitive monotheism, the question is, is, is this a quest truly appointed to him by God, the divine mind, or is this his own projection? Is the divine mind at play here really Constantine's? And I could go on about that, but that's, that's it about the title. It's, it's rather a richly layered book title, if I do say so, and uh, one that I'm sure will fill with more meaning as people investigate the book. Mm-hmm. So you describe that Constantine, even before his association with Christianity, that he was a monotheist. What kind of monotheism was it, or who was his God, would you say? I think that's right. I think Constantine, before he could have ever been called a Christian, appears to have been a pagan monotheist. I'm not the only person to come to that conclusion. Pagan monotheism, that probably sounds kind of strange to many people. And I think that's the result of 
this paradigm in which we have, in our minds, we've kind of pit Roman paganism and Christianity against each other mm-hmm. around monotheism, right? Roman pagans worship many gods, Christians only worship one. We've kind of kind of had this view, this kind of two black and white view. But contrary to popular belief, Christians were not necessarily persecuted by Rome simply because they only wanted to worship this god and not other ones. But it was mostly because of what they decided to do with monotheism. They believed that you should not worship the traditional deities alongside of the worship of a supreme god, that those were incompatible. And that was seen definitely as a a dangerous threat. Now, I argue that Constantine was one of many Romans who were not only interested in a supreme god and felt that worship of a supreme god was compatible with Roman traditions, but he was a Roman who thought that monotheism was actually a great unifier, that it could actually be shared by all peoples, and which at one point in human history had actually been shared by all peoples. This was a popular opinion to, to some degree. Jews, Christians, pagans, many great thinkers, even I argue the Apostle Paul, and perhaps we can talk about that later on as well. Many people had said that in ancient times, a pure monotheism with no idols had once been the original religion of mankind. And as I was researching all of this, I kept finding this um, recurring narrative. And I coined this phrase to describe it. I call it the decline of monotheism narrative. So Constantine was one of many people who believed a story that was something like this. Once upon a time in an earlier golden age, there existed this pure monotheism with no idols. And because of this connection to the true God, God was pleased and he heaped all kinds of benefits and blessings on human beings. However, for various reasons, depending on the version of the story, things began to change and human beings turned away from the true God. They turned to idolatry. They started worshiping beasts and other men and other things. And soon monotheism was lost. It was obscured to some degree. And because of this, many people said that human relations deteriorated, human government deteriorated, all these horrible things. And the implication that I found in all of these stories was that if somebody could just reclaim this monotheism, well, then God would be happy again. And man could then return to this lost golden age that had been lost. Again, Jews, Christians, pagans can be found saying this. I actually see this directly in Romans chapter 1, where Paul says, although they knew God, who's the they there? Right? He's speaking to the Romans. So he's, I believe, speaking about their ancestors. Although they knew God, they exchanged him right for idols and for the worship of all kinds of created things. And then Paul says that terrible things happened as a result, right? Man was given over to a depraved mind. So Paul wants us to return to that monotheism. And if we do that, then we'll get God's blessing. And so this kind of story that Paul is relating here in Romans chapter 1 is, in fact, I think, the meta narrative that Constantine views his entire career through. It's within this story that he locates his own identity and his sense of purpose. And so I believe he was interested in these ideas, yes, before he ever could have even been argued that he was a Christian. He was a worshiper of the God of his father. So this was the sun god, Sol Invictus. Um, what is that word you're saying? Soul? Soul Invictus. Soul is solar, right? 
Yes, yes, and it's so, spelled it's spelled uh, Invictus, but you don't pronounce the the V like that in Latin. Uh, and what does it mean? Un, it's the unconquerable sun or the invincible sun, mm -hmm. the unbeatable sun. Mm -hmm. And uh, many people are familiar with Constantine's coinage that he minted. He actually had a lot of propaganda, several medallions printed that had the image of the sun god with Sol wearing this radiant crown. If you see the crown that say on the Statue of Liberty, that is a motif of a solar deity. And Constantine was famous for associating himself with this imagery as well. Now, some people get confused and they think, well, he must have thought that he was this God, that he is the sun God, or he is the supreme God. But I don't believe that that's the case. Just briefly, if you look at the religious propaganda of the Tetrarchy that we spoke about earlier, Diocletian, his kind of patron deity was Jupiter or Zeus. And he would dress himself up in his clothing. And he would put that on his propaganda and on his coinage. And his other co-emperor, Maximian, his patron deity was Hercules. So you will get images of, of Maximian wearing the lion skin that Hercules was famous for wearing. This doesn't necessarily mean that they thought that they were these gods, but they are an embodiment of these gods in the sense that they're carrying out their will. I believe that Diocletian set himself up as the great restorer and reformer of Roman tradition back to the worship of the many gods of the, of the Roman pantheon. And that's the context in which Constantine sets up his own rule and his own religious imagery. He is the greatest servant and agent of soul, the supreme God. In fact, that's how he mints his coins. He says to soul and, and with this, my companion. So he doesn't think he himself is this sun God or the supreme God. But it's important to note that this sun God was a supreme God during his time. And even before in the previous century, I mentioned earlier, I think that Emperor Aurelian had Sol as his patron god. But the interesting thing about Roman solar monotheism or pagan monotheism was that it was typically much more, um, you could say, inclusive of other religious views. Mm. In pagan circles, interest in a supreme god was usually attended by a belief that kind of a pluralistic spirit in which all gods were either different names for the same God or the many gods of the world were different metaphysical emanations from the one, from the Supreme God. Whereas Christians and Jews, on the other hand, tended to be much more exclusive, if you will, about that. So I argue that, that Constantine was around the time that he began to really take power around 312, most people think he just immediately converted there on the spot and became a Christian. But I think that the evidence is more suggestive that he, like many people, was a Roman pagan interested in pluralism and harmonization, and that he had no problem seeing the Christian God and the Roman sun God as one and the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see what you mean when you say that there's a certain genuineness, let's call it that, that Constantine had because he felt that the Roman Empire's problems stemmed from the wrong religious system, the, the multiple gods, so that now he is calling people back to a, a monotheism of some sort. And 
later on we can get into the idea of him incorporating the monotheism of Christianity into his ideas of the one God. Can I just ask you, Keegan, so the sun God, is that the Roman God Apollo? So Apollo during that period had already taken on uh, solar characteristics and much of the imagery is piloting a solar chariot. But there were many different versions of solar or light deities uh, at that time, uh, including uh, Mithras, the very popular one, the Greek god Helios. Apollo was certainly seen to be associated with the sun and, of course, soul. Mm -hmm. And I know as well, certain Egyptian pharaoh, he did the same kind of thing. He became a monotheist. Do they really think that the sun is the god, or is the sun itself a representation? Well, sun worship has been around for many, many centuries. You were referring to Akhenaten in the 14th century BC with his solar god Aten, who was a monotheistic god. But there is definitely an interesting confluence of Egypt, Egyptian religion, uh, Greek philosophy and sun worship, which all finds itself bound up in this very fascinating way inside of Constantine's religious ideas. Mm. Okay, so is the sun the god itself? Is the sun a representation? Do we know how they felt? It would depend on who you're, on who you're speaking about. People have had different ideas about that since time immemorial. If you are a worshiper of Sol Invictus, then I'm going to say, that no, you don't necessarily think that the sun is Sol Invictus. Uh, if you're a philosopher, if you're a Platonist, then you don't think that either. You think that it is representative of the good or the principle of the one from which other things emanate. Although there were certainly some pagan religionists who did worship the sun directly, and we do have some, some evidence of that, but that would not have been a very philosophical opinion. Okay. Now, Kagan, if you don't mind, I'd like to go to the Council of Nicaea, which is one of the reasons Constantine is famous. He'll preside over this Council of Bishops in 325 AD. Maybe before we do, do you want to say anything about how Constantine began to be exposed to accept some form of Christianity? How is it that he begins to incorporate it? Yeah, it's a great question, and, and I deal at length with these questions uh, in my book. But to put it simply, I think his involvement and his calling to Christianity is really wrapped up with his calling to the Supreme God. Because again, I argue that especially at the beginning and the early stages of career, the sun god and the Christian god are one and the same. A lot of people get tripped up there because the traditional story is that in 312, just before the Battle of Milvin Bridge, where he's going to fight against Maxentius for control of Rome, the, the story, as reported by Eusebius and Lactantius, these uh, Christian scholars, uh, they reported that Constantine had some sort of vision in the sky, had a dream of Christ, perhaps he saw some sort of a cross or some sort of a Christian-looking symbol, and from at that point, he quit being a pagan polytheist and became a Christian monotheist and God delivered him and gave him the battle. And from that point forward in 312, 
he was a great Christian saint, progressively learning more and more, of course, but certainly a Christian, and some scholars have even argued an anti-pagan who went about banning and making life difficult for pagans. That is a traditional picture and the picture that most people have in their mind when they think about the conversion of Constantine. But what's so interesting about that picture of his initial introduction to Christianity is how similar that story is to a story of another vision that he had two years earlier before Milvin Bridge in 310. This is at a time when he was most decidedly a pagan, and all people can agree on that. And in 310, we have a panegyrist who later writes of this very well-known experience of Constantine's. And he says this, he says, Constantine, you saw your Apollo accompanied by victory, and they offered you laurel crowns, each carrying an omen of 30 years of rule. And in another part, he says that he saw his own face in the god Apollo, which again was associated with the sun. So here's Constantine. He's a pagan. He sees his face in the visage of the sun god. And we can get into the question of what he actually saw. I go into that in, in the book. But what the sun god, the solar vision is doing is it's promising him total rule, not simply, you know, long life as one of the members of the tetrarchy, but it's offering him total rule which is interesting because there are other co-emperors around, including two emperors above him. And what we can see is that sole rule at that time must have been associated with monotheism because the tetrarchic plural rule was definitely associated with a plurality of gods in the heavens. So already in the year 310, he's not only showing an interest in becoming the biggest dog on the block and ruling everything, He's interested in, well, he's a solar monotheist. This is one example of one piece of evidence. So this is the guy who eventually gets mixed up with Christianity. Now, what's interesting between this vision and the other Christian vision that he allegedly has in 312 is how similar they are. In both of them, he hears this voice. He sees this God or this divine figure who is offering him victory. It's very similar. And what's interesting is, you know, when you talk about the vision of Constantine, we should really talk about the visions of Constantine. He's been called a very vision-prone emperor. And visions were supposed to be had by Roman emperors because emperors are supposed to be um, chosen and sanctioned by the gods. And so you are supposed to have this great and unparalleled connection to heaven. In fact, the panegyrists often reflect of Constantine. You know, they'll say, Constantine, you know, the divine mind chose you to have this special relationship with, but they've relegated our care to these lesser gods. But, you know, you've got the inside track. You're this special guy. So this is the guy who says, I've got to restore the true religion. So what I see is, and I argue for this in great detail, that Constantine is looking around the Roman Empire. He's a very practical, he's a very pragmatic man. And he wants to know which of these expressions of monotheism, because there were several, uh, which of these is going to be the best means by which I can fulfill my duty to God and to resurrect this pure and iconic monotheism on the earth. And for a variety of reasons that we won't get into, the Christian religion seems like a really great vehicle for this program. 
And so he begins to legalize uh, Christians, their meeting places to benefit them. A lot of people know that Constantine granted freedom of religion to Christians, but what they don't know is in that exact edict, which is often called the Edict of Milan, which actually was jointly issued with Licinius, another co-emperor at that time who was not a Christian, they were affording rights to both pagans and Christians. They said nobody should be molested in the realm for their religious views. So he sees that the Christians are the ones who can help him to reestablish this true worship. And he begins to grant the Christians all sorts of immunities and special privileges. And maybe this picture will be helpful. I see Constantine envisioning a world in which the presence of this beam of light of true religion being offered up to God affords security and blessings for the state. And the absence of that beam of light, of that true worship, that right frequency gets changed or it gets interrupted by government or distractions or if people get confused so that that beam of true religion got offered up to God, if that frequency gets off, then disaster ensues. And we can see Constantine begins issuing decrees exempting Christian bishops from certain civic duties, as he says, so that their worship isn't interrupted. He wants the Christians to go and to teach the rest of the empire about true religion and how to worship God. And he thinks he is the one to do that right alongside of them. So for a variety of reasons, I think he finds Christianity a great kind of, they're like the the horses for his solar chariot, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, that are going to pull his religious restoration program across the empire. And that eventually, I argue, would manifest in a decision to become a Christian much later in his life. But along the way, he does get entangled in Christian disputes. And I think you you mentioned the Council of Nicaea. Yeah. Um, We can get into that now. Let's. Um, Yeah. Why would Constantine ever get mixed up in something like the Council of Nicaea? Why did he call that? Well, again, you have to have the context. You have to have the background that I've hopefully clearly laid out in which the Christians are supposed to be the ones, they're going to be the beacon on the hill. They're the beacon of light teaching and guiding the empire towards true religion, towards monotheism. Again, it's not the particulars of monotheism that matter, especially early on in his career. He is much less concerned with the particulars and more concerned with a harmonization of the empire's religions around monotheism. And this is something that all people should be able to get on board with. Uh, So the Christians are supposed to be this great example, but what he discovers is that in the 320s, he discovers that the Christians are fighting. There is Arius, a presbyter from Alexandria, is fighting with his bishop, Alexander. And they're causing all kinds of ruckus. And they're, in fact, arguing about monotheism. Now, this is not the first time that there had been Christian disputes and Constantine stepped in. In the 314 through about 316, Constantine becomes embroiled in the Donatist controversy in Africa, in which factions of Christians were arguing over who is the true church. That's a little bit of an oversimplification, but 
Constantine was very angry with that. He called the Council of Arles over it to try to sort this out. He wanted them to stop fighting, and he even eventually authorized his military to go in and intercede, and that was a disaster, and many church leaders were actually killed. So by the time Nicaea rolls around, Constantine already has a well-established history with Christianity of doing everything in his power to get them to stop fighting. And you, and you have to ask, well, why does he want them to stop fighting? And again, I think that's because these bishops were supposed to be the ones to lead the empire back to the true God. They were the great example that he could point to. And here they are, they can't agree. And now in, in 324, 325, they're arguing about monotheism itself. Well, we can't have that. And so Constantine writes letters to Arius and to Alexandria, and you can read them and listen to the desperation in his voice. He's begging them to please stop arguing. He says, can't you be more like the philosophers who just kind of agree to disagree? Mm-hmm. So he ultimately sends one of his advisors, Bishop Hosius of Cordova. He sends them there to investigate this matter, and ultimately the council is called. That would happen in 325. And there are a lot of angles to the very rich and complicated and dramatic history of the Council of Nicaea. I think, though, the best way probably to approach that history and what happened, especially Constantine's involvement there, is around this word homoousios. We will stop there for now. I know, kind of unfair. Keegan was just about to describe the Greek word homoousios, which means something like same substance or same essence. It is a word and concept that has become essential to deity of Christ and Trinitarian theology and Christology, that the Son is the same substance, homoousius, with the Father. Homoousius and ideas associated with it had been banned by Christian bishops some 55 years before the A.D. 325 Council of Nicaea. But then at the Council of Nicaea, the word was reintroduced perhaps by none other than Constantine himself. In our next episode, God willing, Keegan will discuss homoousius and other aspects of the non-Trinitarian Council of Nicaea, and he will also describe how Constantine viewed himself in association to Jesus and the Apostles. This is Bill Schlegel for the One God Report podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That will help others to find us and share the podcast on social media. For constructive discussion, you are welcome to join the One God Report Facebook group. Yishma'u anavim ve'yishmahu. The humble will hear and rejoice.